powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. Hey, thank you, everyone. Thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Everyone, please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. And I want to say to everyone listening, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Before we get into the episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Bobby Umar. What an absolute delight to speak with Bobby, and his episode was incredibly well received. If you haven't had a chance to check out the interview, I encourage you to do so after the conclusion of this amazing episode. That being said, welcome to episode 110. We have an absolutely incredible historic episode for you today, folks. As a special Christmas gift to all of Duval Nation, we have on the show the legendary film composer Howard Blake on the show. At the age of 84, Howard is still incredibly sharp and takes us on a journey starting with how he grew up during the Blitz in World War II, how he got into music, early successful compositions, working with the legendary rock band Queen, writing music for Princess Diana, and of course, his most recognized and celebrated work, the score to the 1982 animated Christmas classic, The Snowman. This is an incredibly in-depth interview, and it was one of the greatest honors of my life to speak to Howard. So let's get right on into it, folks. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and welcome all the way from Kensington in central London, one of the most accomplished film composers in the history of cinema, Mr. Howard Blake. Good morning. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? It's a beautiful sunny day. So I start my interviews with the same question. Uh, that is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Not a lot of fun. <laughs> it was, uh, when it started, we thought, well, how is it going to last? We thought it. Is, is it as bad as they make it? Or one didn't know how to handle it. But, uh, then you're told you you know you, you shouldn't travel, and then you've got to have jabs and all of this. One realised it was it was changing our whole society, changing our whole life, and uh, it now. I mean, it does seem now that we're coming out of it but then one keeps getting a nudge saying well maybe there's something more more so we i just hope to god it's it's over now i understand so every journey has a beginning and yours starts in 1938 where were you born and what was it like growing up in world war ii era britain i was born in london in, in north london uh, place called Enfield, North London. And um, we, we were just by an armaments factory. 
So when war broke out, my father rather rather sensibly said, I think we're in a pretty bad place. So we moved out, out to the country. We moved to a little village just outside London called Cuffley, which was absolutely delightful. But we did see uh, German bombers coming over. I think we missed being bombed next to the armaments factory. We could see Messerschmitts coming over. And my my brother and I, how, hobby, can you believe it? When we were about four, three, four, five years old, was picking up shrapnel from the air battles overhead. <laughs> this was sort of quite fun. Oh, look, it's a bullet. <laughs> I remember very well, we all sat down and listened to broadcasts by Winston Churchill, who, who was sort of amazing and made you feel life. We're going to win. It was like, and and he was right. But it was, you know, it's a strange time to to have been born. I was I was actually born on the day that, the exact day that Hitler entered Vienna. Oh wow! <laughs> in, in 1938. So I really part part of that World War II era. But what one thing's very interesting about it is that people at that time were very cheerful everybody thought we were going to win but there was a tremendous sort of feeling of solidarity and and we would have platoons of soldiers marching past us in the road and they'd be singing (laughs) and it was a curious time people were not you'd think they would be very very dour and but actually there was a great feeling of, of you know, cheerfulness about the world at that time. Otherwise, if you'd really thought about, maybe we're going to be bombed to death the next day, you couldn't have gone on. <laughs> so you come from a musical family. Tell us about them. Yeah, my mother played the violin and the piano. She'd grown up with it. My grandmother also played violin and piano. And then she married my father, who, who he wasn't a musician, but he sang, and he very much wanted to be a, a musician. So he he sang in the church choir, and he also persuaded myself and my brother to to join the choir. We were very young. We moved to Bright. The end of the war is where I I grew up, and uh, we I sang in the local choir, but I I also played duets on the piano with my mother. I also played a bit of of violin and a bit of flute, and then a piano I started to play seriously. And curiously, my my father, who hadn't had any lessons, could play by ear. He could play Uh. anything by, so he had that. I gained an academic approach from my mother and a natural by ear approach from my father. <laughs> <laughs> what do you remember from winning the Hastings Musical Festival Scholarship that got you into the Royal Academy of Music? What had happened is, uh, at the age of about 16, I'd been taken up by a very good teacher in Brighton called Christine Pembridge. She said to my parents, he ought to go into the to the profession. He's got a terrific talent. They, they didn't really believe that. But when this, this Hastings Festival, they, they issued a, a, a scholarship to the Academy. Every three years, they awarded a, a three-year, fully paid-up scholarship to the Royal Academy of Music. And this was a much, the, on, the only sort of 
big prize in the whole of the south coast uh, of England going. Really. And Christine Pembridge, my teacher, said, well, I'm going to put you in for that. And I, I was quite surprised. I said, well, do you think I stand any chance? She said, you know, work, work. She said she was a great one for work. Play, play the scales and play the, play the Chopin studies. I played all of the Chopin studies eventually. She made me work extremely hard at the piano. And I remember going to, to Hastings that day, and there were a lot of interventions for it. I remember playing, and I played the Chopin ballad uh, in, in A minor, and I played the Bach uh, Toccata, and uh, I, won, I won the scholarship. I hadn't done any concerts, and, and the huge crowd gathered, and I was really scared, and I ran all the way down to the beach to escape. And, and they came after me and said, look, you've got to come. You, they want photos of you in the press. So I was suddenly launched into being a celebrity <laughs> at, without, without uh, knowing what was going on. It, it came to me as a huge surprise. And I remember going back to, to my grammar school in Brighton where I, I was, they didn't regard me as a musician. They, they thought I was going to go to Oxford and read history. <laughs> I, I remember meeting the headmaster and, and I said, I've, I've won a scholarship from music three years. He said, well, you can't take it. We, we won't have you. It would be betray the school. <laughs> so he thought, music? You don't do music if you're a proper person. <laughs> music is for, for girls. I mean, they said, so he was totally against it. And he said, I think you should give up the scholarship. So I said, well, it's news to me that I'm good enough to be a musician. And if you've taken that view and you don't want me at the school playing music, I won't bother to come to the school anymore because I'll, I'll devote the rest, rest of my time to practising the piano before I go to the academy. So that's what I did. And I never went back to the school again. And much to his surprise, he had what they call A-levels, do, do exams. I said, well, I'll come back for the exams. So... I came back for the exams. I got the top prize in the exams without having been to school for a return. <laughs> it really, really upset the hell out of him. <laughs> <laughs> so you left music for a few years. You know, After you started getting back to music, do you remember what led you to meeting EMI? When I got to the academy, I have to go back a bit. I found it very difficult to get on with them because they were very, very strictly sort of classical. And I, I at that time was quite interested in in jazz and other forms of of music, and I was also very interested, indeed, in film. And I was terribly interested in writing the idea of music for film. And at that time, I I decided when I left the academy, I actually didn't know what to do and I thought I've got to get a job and nobody gave me any any clue about what I could do I actually I moved to London and uh, slept on somebody's floor for the night I got up in the morning and I saw this in evening news an advert projectionist wanted at the National Film Theatre now I thought well that would be fantastic because they run all the greatest films ever made I thought, well, it it wouldn't hurt me to 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 work. I need a job, so I went I went along. I got the job. I absolutely loved it, and 
uh, one of the great film directors came there. Yeah, the first day I was there, Fritz Lang was there giving a, a lecture, and I recorded him. <laughs> well, that, that was absolutely wild. I was at the Fritz Lang, and because we were doing a Fritz Lang season, so we also, you know, that we did seasons of of all the great directors, and of course they came. They came. So I decided that I wanted to make films and I wanted to write music. I started the, actually on day one. I said, I'd, I'd like to make a film. Would you like to join in? We'll put money in the kitty and we'll make it on 16 millimeter. And so while I was there, I was there for a couple of years. I made a film and I actually also wrote commentary for it and I wrote the music for it and I recorded the music. For it. So I then submitted it to the National Film and it was shown in Cinema One. British National Film which was fantastic for me, and I was I was the, still the projectionist. But in that job, I started to meet people like Lindsay Anderson and famous film directors who were there, and they were they were all in the bar at the end of it. And I go in there and I would talk to them about their films. So what a great place to be! Oh, absolutely. So what led to the decision to start actually composing films? That film, which which was called A Few Days, it, it was a, a 20 minute, 16 millimeter film. I wrote the music for it. So that's, that's the first music I ever wrote for a film. I so much liked doing that. I got people from the Royal Academy, my ex-students, I got them down, we recorded them. I was still working as a projectionist. I can't think of the name of the director, a very big time director. He was doing a film called The Ride of the Valkyrie and he wanted some music like Wagner, but with a jazz tinge to it. I talked about him in the bar at the National Film Center and I got the job. And that's how I got in. That was the first foothold into writing music for the movies. I then started to, to get film after film to write. I mean, both small, uh, I did documentary films and I also did uh, animation films and uh, I gradually moved upwards. So not a bad thing to start on. No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Devon Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we'll be right back with the conclusion of this interview with the legendary Howard Blake. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that eggnog Tell your annoying drunk family member to shut up and take some super long deep breaths. You know, Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Give a couple friends of the show your attention and we will be right back. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And together we are the Spy Hearts Podcast. Every Tuesday we decode the best and the worst of spy cinema to decipher if they make the knock list. That's right, the knock list is the need to see official classics of the spy genre. The best of the best, so to speak. Nobody does it better. From Bourne to Bond and Powers to Palmer, you can bet we will cover it. So subscribe now and revel in the audio equivalent of a smooth martini. Just search for Spy Hards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on all major podcast apps. And let's just hope you find us before we find you. 
Duval Nation, Derek and Mindy Duval here to talk about Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. The Derek Duval Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun with Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro. As a veteran, I am always the first to support veteran-owned businesses. Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold. With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate. Offered in various sized packaging, use promo code DUBAL37, all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember, folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro Beef Jerky. Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. Hey, this is Patrick Baker, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. Check out my new single, Sorrow, available on all major streaming platforms. And you can check my site out at patrickbakermusic.com. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hi, it's Michelle Fabre, and you can hear my new single, Last Chance for Love, on Spotify, Apple Music, and all other streaming platforms. Last chance for love, last chance for love, can we make it? Just tell me so. Looking for a new podcast? Check out the Infectious Groove podcast. My name is Russ, and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle. Every Monday, the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jams, so you'll always have new music to check out. The Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear. On top of that, we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking, discussing, and sharing music. We also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. Janae Sergio, arriving. 
Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 110 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with legendary film composer Howard Blake. How were you approached to do what is considered to be your most celebrated work, The Snowman? I had been in uh, Canada where I'd met a, an animator called Jerry Partington. I'd, I'd done a film for him, which was a sort of uh, outside the main uh, studios, a rather crazy film called The Rainbow Boys, and uh, Partington Films Montreal. I'd done that, and then... I discovered he was, what he mainly was interested in is um, cartoon films. And that was something I got interested in as well. And he said, would you like to do a film? It was called The Remarkable Rocket. And it was made by uh, CBS Reader's Digest. And Jerry wanted a score for the Montreal Symphony he wanted, a, he wanted a, a proper symphonic score. He said, can you do that? Yes, I said, of course I can do that. I'd love to do So I did that remarkable rocket. And then I came back to London. I'd actually done worked on a number of animated films for some very good people indeed, Dick Williams, Jerry Potter. So. And one day... Jerry Potterton, I hadn't seen for some time, he came over to London one day and he said, uh, I'd love to catch up with you. He said, I've, I've got to go to an animation uh, company in Charlotte Street and pick up pick up some money and and then we, we can go off and have, have some lunch. Okay, so I go, I go there, I go to this. Uh, it, it was actually the, the studio that made Yellow Submarine. And the guy who was there, who I met John Cox, had had been the producer of uh, Yellow Submarine. So I, I anyway, I'm there. So I just was in there to meet Joe. So, so he looked at me. He said, I've met you somewhere. He said, I said, where? He said, in New York for some primary. You're how bloke. So I said, yes, I am. Oh, he said, do you know anything about animation films? I said, yes, I, I said a little. I have actually written, written scores for a couple. Well, he said, I've, I've just got a new idea. I've got tiny ideas. It's, it's only eight minutes. It's called The Snowman. And I don't really know what to do with it. And, you know, I'm, think, I'm thinking of making it, but I don't know quite how. But he said, uh, would it be... He said, I've had some music done, which I don't actually like. I don't, I don't think really works very much. But would it be a very uh, sort of bad-mannered of me to ask you to look at it? I said, not at all. Show it. Please show it to me. So he shows it to me. He had this awful, awful, sort of music going on. I said, well, that, that music is terrible. 
take it up, turn the music off. Anyway, show, and he just showed me this picture of the, of the snowman flying through the sky with the boy. And I said, that is such a fabulous image. I said, and I've got a, a song in my head. I've had it there for years, about 10 years. I've had a song and I've never known what to do with it. And I now know it would go on that. It would be fantastic, would you? And I said, you could make a whole film with no words, just with music. He said, no, you have to have words. I said, no, you, you don't. Well, okay, he said, prove it. He said, will you do a demo? Two days after that, going to a studio, Ambition in, in London, and I recorded a piece of music to go, and it included the, the tune Walking in the Air. I said, well, see if you can get Channel, channel 4. Was, uh, it was opening that day. This is 1981. By some sort of amazing coincidence. And I said, Jeremy Isaacs, he's, he's, take, he's starting this, showing this. If they, they might want to make it in, as a half hour with no dialogue and just music. And, and John said, oh, don't be ridiculous. You got it. I said, well, try it. Take it into him. Here you are. I'm not going to charge you for it. Just take him in, show him my demo. He went and he showed, he said, You're right, make an absolutely brilliant film. <laughs> well, make it. Which was sort of amazing, really. It, it, it's not supposed to happen like that. But Jeremy Isaac said, Wait, make it. He not only made it, he made it, it was actually probably the, the most successful film ever made by Channel 4. As they worked on it, I, I enlarged the score so that it lasted for a television half hour. And then we later recorded it with orchestra. We put the song on it with, with the boys singing Peter Orty. I mean, it, it was a colossal success mm -hmm. and has remained so. <laughs> How long did it take you to actually write the full score for The Snowman? Uh, uh, probably two or three weeks. Uh, wow. I remember that actually I was writing a horror film at the same time. Funny, <laughs> funny thing, Amateurville 3, but by a curious coincidence, I just started on the snowman and I suddenly <laughs> asked from Dino De Laurentiis, right? He said, You've got to do this. I said, I can't do it. I've got a thing called the summer. No, you've got to do this. So I, I actually wrote Amityville three during the day and Snowman in the evening <laughs> for, about three, for about three weeks. <laughs> From writing Walking in the Air, did you have any idea it would be the hit that it became? No, no, no. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, I just thought my tune fitted that image and i was so right about that and it's some sort of miracle that i had that tune which i'd never done anything and and it fitted and i thought that's gonna sound marvelous so i never think anything's ever going to go anywhere i mean you can't think like that because i i did a film called titan titanic once and i, was, I thought it was going to be the biggest thing as it had you know it had got the biggest budget in the world, and it didn't didn't do a thing. So you know, you don't know what what will do anything, what will do something. We're going to talk about that movie, that Titanic movie, in a few minutes. But the, there is one question that we I want to finish up with the snowman with, and is um, when you saw the finished product. To um, what was your original reaction? I thought it was terrific. Mm -hmm. 
I thought it was terrific. And I, I think it's, it owed a very great deal to a girl, a girl called Diane Jackson, who was the director of it, who she suddenly appeared, uh, she'd been doing commercials, and she was suddenly given this job of directing The Snowman by John Coates. She, she really had the most terrific talent, and we got on famously, and, and she had also got a team of animators around her. But my God, it absolutely took off in a, a most extraordinary way. I think he got robbed of that Academy Award. Oh, yes. Well, I, I, I think people who win Academy Awards, they spend their whole life working on how to get the Academy Award. <laughs> you have to give up a certain amount of time. I've never devoted any time to doing that myself. <laughs> so moving on from The Snowman, what is your favorite memory of working with Queen? Oh, Queen. Well, on, on uh, Flash Gordon. Yeah. Uh, I was amazed to be asked to, to, to write a score for Flash Gordon because Sky are a self-contained uh, rock group and they, they produce their own music and so on. So I thought, uh, I wonder what they want me to do. <laughs> I met up with them. I got on very well with Freddie Mercury. I said, well, what would you got a contribution to this? He said, I've, I've got this tune for the ride to Arborea. He said, I'd really like you to get that in. I, I said, well, sing it to me. So he sang it to me in my studio. And I said, that's, that's, a, beautiful, that's a beautiful tune. For <laughs> and I played it for him on the piano. And we put that into the film. And then I met, I met Brian May. And uh, I said, you know, well, you know, you actually need an enormous score because this is an enormous, it's, it's, it's over two hours long. It needs a, a complete uh, orchestral score mm. with a large orchestra. And he said, well, can you do that? I said, sure, sure I can do it. Yeah. But Brian, he, what he really hoped is that they had had an assistant who had not come up with anything at all, about three seconds of nothing. Brian, he wanted the music to be but quick, but nobody else knew how to write an orchestral score. So I said, well, I will write one. And then I think that Brian hoped that he could they then sort of pilfer bits of my score and turn it into something sound like Queen. Won't go on about it too much, but it was all this huge history of how it worked. I was pretty pleased with my two-hour score. I still have it in this room, but it, it got slightly altered. And I think bits of Queen came back and bits of Burma and bits of Freddie. And however, I, I mean, it is a very big film. And uh, I shall say I'm happy to have written it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you remember from commissioning and being a part of Princess Diana's birthday in 1991. Well, that was a wonderful thing. I, I couldn't believe it when, when I was offered it because it was being suggested, I think, by the Queen herself. I, I just thought that this, is, this is almost like a fairy tale to, 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 be, to be asked to write a, like my own piano concerto um, for her. And then I remember saying to uh, the palace, I said, well, who will you get to play it? 
I said, I thought the best pianist in the world to play it. And then I said, you're going to play it. I said, you want me to play it? <laughs> so, well, everybody says you could play it because I did start life as a pianist. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that, that's, that puts a whole different complexion on it. And, so, and it would also mean that I would meet Princess Diana. I'd also have to be in very good practice. And so I had to turn down a lot of job, drop everything. Well, first of all, I had to write concerto, which was, about, I think, about 20, 28 minutes, something like that. And half hour concerto, and then I had had to to learn it all. Hmm. And um, I'll tell you one thing about, about it. I remember the day I was commissioned. It was my publishers, Faber and Faber, the directors. They came round to my house here, and they said, "What? What's the theme? I think it, the theme should be something sort of happy and very light, like Princess Diana is. She's obviously she's serene, and she's." happy and she enjoys life so and he wants it and she doesn't show off so it was a very little thing and i said it should be just some little thing like and i said actually i think that's it <laughs> <laughs> that is the opening bar of and it it came from somewhere in the ether in the atmosphere onto me and and it, that just was that was her, that was her thing. I then developed it. Uh, and when, when of course, I, w I went to her birthday, it was in the, in the Royal Festival Hall, and um, I, I went up and, and met her. She, she just loved it. And I mean, that, that for me was a very great privilege. Was she, was she very shy? She's very nice. She wasn't shy. No, she's and, and I discovered I discovered that she played the piano. Hmm. Did you know she played the piano? I this wasn't aware of that. A closely guarded secret, hasn't it? It's, it's funny. It just come out. Possibly they thought it wasn't a thing that the royal royal should do. Play the piano. But I didn't realize she, but she played pretty well. Well, but. Um, I met her afterwards, and she very and she said, "Oh, she loved it." I went up, went up to the raw box there, and had a drinks with her, and uh, it, was, it was a terrific evening. And That's awesome. So you mentioned earlier uh, the Titanic film. Like I said, a fan when I told her that you were going to be on the show wrote in this question, and they said, "What do you remember working on the score for the 1978 film SOS Titanic?" I was very excited to be asked to write it. It, it was actually, it, a, a head of studio from Hollywood actually rang me and he said, are you Hal Blake? I said, yeah. He said, um, I've, ju I've just seen a score you wrote for Ridley Scott called The Duelists. And he said, I have a film, which is also an epic film and it's called SOS Titanic. And I think I'd like to ask you to write the score for Titanic. So they, I said, you, you don't sound too sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, he said, well, could I meet you? I said, well, you can, but I'm in London. Where are you? He said, I'm in Hollywood. Well, he said, I'll, I'll come over. He got on the next plane and he came over. I thought, that's amazing. Um, and so we got together. 
you know, we'd, we'd love you to do it. Will you, will you come out to Hollywood? I think he wanted to see what I looked like and whether I'd fit in in Hollywood or something. And so anyway, so I, fl I flew out. It got me a, a lovely hat, a little house uh, in Studio City to work in, like a studio to work in, and I a hotel just up the road there in the valley. And given me everything, they give me a chauffeur-driven sports car. They give me with a beautiful girl driver. They <laughs> <laughs> gave me really gave me the whole works. But I had to write the score, and it was a big, big score to write. I think we eventually recorded it. I can't remember. I think we recorded it in London after it. Eventually, mm. I enjoyed writing, and it was a big epic. What I think did happen. I thought at the time I took it on, it was it would have been the, by far the most expensive film ever made of the Titanic story, and it was it was I mean a, a, a wonderful thing to be offered. But what what happened? Something happened that another company, I think it, it was 20th Century Fox. You probably know that. So if that company thinks it's worth spreading that, we should make another one. And so another one was planned. And that in some way, I think, upstaged SOS Titanic. Mm. You seem to agree. <laughs> I, I do. I've seen SOS Titanic. It's it's very, it's pre, I think it was pre-discovery of the wreckage. So like I said, a lot of the, a lot of the movies, obviously it was changed for the 1997 version. So yeah. 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 So you've made music for several films with almost no dialogue. Is this by chance? Is this something you sought out? It's what I've always wanted to do. I just find the combination of music and image, moving image, I just think for me is the greatest art form of the present day. When you when you put words on. Uh, that that becomes a different focus because the, then the script becomes more of an important factor than than the sound and the music. But for me to write, I absolutely love to write music for great uh, cinematography. So most uh, film orchestrational scores can be traced back to Wagner. What, in your opinion, is the greatest film score ever made? Oh gosh, I think. I think Citizen Kane is pretty good. I greatly admire Bernard Herrmann. Psycho also is is a fabulous score. Mm -hmm. It's it's very scary. Uh, I I think I I would put Bernard uh, high high up in, in that uh, area. Yeah, maybe i'd say citizen kane's got because I, I i think it's it's a combination it's probably the best film I've made. <laughs> there are two things to judge you can you can have a wonderful film with a terrible score and you can have a, a terrible film with a wonderful score <laughs> but to get both wonderful that's that's a good trick isn't it so how taken back were you when you got your obe Funnily enough, I, I got this letter on this desk here and um, I look at it and it says government official. Oh, I, I, I thought I was being arrested. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thought it was from the police. I left it there. I thought, 
I thought, what on earth can that be? And I left it for several days before I summoned up the courage to open it. And I opened it up, it says the Order of the British Empire. I was sort of amazed by that. I was delighted that I should be honored with it. And that is for writing film music. That's awesome. So after 50 years and over 650 pieces of work, are you currently working on anything or are you retired? I started writing a violin concerto earlier this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Since you are. No, I, awesome. st I still write. And it's, it's funny. It's just, I just suddenly ideas come into my head. I think I better write that down. Just That's like. awesome. So uh, one day, unfortunately, you'll leave us. What would you like to happen to your music? And what do you want your legacy to be? Well, I, I, I'm terribly lucky to have got Evans looking after me at this moment. And he looks after all my uh, music. When I go, he, he would like to look after it, so I'm arranged, I've arranged in my world. <laughs> but um, I hope, I mean, I've also got children, uh, three children, and they will benefit, but they, they've never taken a, a sort of, a huge professional interest in, in music or what to do with it. So they will be well looked after. But um, I, I hope very much that my music will carry on being played. I mean, it, it is still played now. And we have hundreds of, of, of different works. Every day, Emmett deals with them and we get, we get requests coming in from all over the world. And, mm -hmm. And he says to me, what are you going to do with that? And I say, well, why don't we put that there? So I, I sort of can't see it stopping. <laughs> I mean, it won't stop and, unless one deliberately decides. I, I, I am trying to make some provision for it. <laughs> so what would be the best way for my listeners to find you online? Is there, Do you have a website you like? Do you have social media? Yes. You, you go to howardblake.com and that would take you to my site. And there are a couple of hundred, I think I'm right in saying, different items, films or pieces of music. They're mostly with visuals. And that you can also get a complete list of, of all 700, I think it's 727 today. <laughs> item is an awful lot of stuff so on howardblake.com that's terrific thing you have now so you can put it on that and see it i mean you can also see it on a lot of television programs but you can you just put in howard blake films like and and you can pick it up but that's the best way just to go to my website youtube oh youtube youtube too so i end my interviews with my favorite question and the question is this if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of earth go on you have to believe that life is the most wonderful gift to mankind and you have to enjoy it and it consists of great music and great art and great people 
and one should always recognize them, listen to them, enjoy them, and say, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful answer. <laughs> Howard, this has truly been one of the greatest honors of my life, and I want to thank you for all you've done for music, and thank you for speaking with me today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. And just like that, Devon Nation, we come to the end of episode 110. I want to thank Howard for taking the time to speak with me. I do not exaggerate when I say that this will go down as one of the greatest moments of not only the Derek Duvall show, but also my personal life. I also want to send a huge thank you to Emmett Elvin for setting this whole interview up, folks. I do not exaggerate. That was really, really something special. Well, if you thought this was special, tune in again next week as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. A few housekeeping items before we close out today. Have you had a chance to check out our store on TeePublic? And with the last chance before Christmas, we have everything from magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have a carefully curated collection of t-shirts put together by myself and Mrs. Duvall. Be sure to go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Look on the banner on the left that says March. Click that, and you will be taken to our store on TeePublic. And as always, I want to thank TeePublic for being such great partners with The Derek Duvall Show. On behalf of the entire team here at The Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, please do your part to help those less fortunate than yourself this holiday season. The pandemic ruined a lot of lives financially, so good people are struggling. Please help whoever you can during the season of giving. No star, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.